0: Welcome to episode 10 of the Sports Law Podcast coming from Blackstone Chambers with me, Nick DiMarco Casey. Today we shall be discussing the fascinating subject of sport and the metaverse. Now, people argue about the definition of the metaverse, or Web3, and even whether it really exists. But we're broadly talking today about a virtual 3D world where people can interact with each other far more as active participants than as mere spectators. A new form of human interaction is one way this has been described as, with the ability to participate, to make commercial transactions in different virtual realities. And all these things create a need for some of the things you will have heard about and will be discussing today, such as cryptocurrencies, the blockchain, NFTs and so on. Sport has been right at the forefront of many of these developments. But rather than get into an abstract discussion about what all this means, what we aim to do in this podcast is explain what the relevance of these new technological innovations are likely to have on sport, what the common legal issues that arise as a result of them and what to look out for in the future. And of course, as usual, I'll be asking all my guests how they ended up working in such an incredibly exciting area. So I'm delighted today to be joined by three guests, all of whom have their fingers on the pulse of this dynamic area. Eitan Jankovic leads the data department at law firm Sheridan's where he specializes in crypto, privacy, technology and advertising. Eitan has been advising crypto businesses since 2013 and way back in 2014, he was profiled by the Wall Street Journal as Britain's Bitcoin barrister. Sheridan's were the second law firm globally to accept crypto payments. Hopefully that didn't go too badly uh, Tom Grogan is the co lead of the blockchain group at the law firm Mishkondorea and he's also CEO of MXT, Mishkondorea's tech consultancy department. He began his career as a lawyer specialising in emerging technologies with a particular focus on sport and he and his team now design and develop software and technology strategies for large enterprises including sports and e organisations. And James King is General Counsel at the Professional Footballers Association, the PFA. That's the Football Players Union, one of the biggest, most influential sports unions in the world. As such, he's involved in a wide cross-section of legal issues affecting professional football players. And before joining the PFA, he was the Senior Legal Counsel for Football Operations at Arsenal Football Club. So he has a unique experience of the impact of new technology on football from both the club side and the players' side. So, before we get into some of the detail, perhaps, Tom, could you just tell us sort of definitionally, uh, given your technical focus, uh, a brief distinction between what we might mean by the metaverse and Web3? Of
1: course. Hi, Nick. Um, I think it's really important at the outset to distinguish um, between the metaverse and web3 so neither of them are technologies um, the metaverse is a uh, a broad construct we think about it as a blurring of physical and digital to bring that to life with an example uh, today if your uh, favorite sports team is playing you either go and watch it in person or you watch it on television uh, in the metaverse that experience of going to uh watch it in person is more creative and experiential, and that's achieved through technology and If you're watching it on television, it feels more physical and it feels more immersive again, leveraging technology that's a very broad definition it includes um the the concept of three d virtual worlds um but we certainly think of it as as more broad than that by distinction web three uh web three has meant a great many things over the last ten years um but always. It refers to the next evolution um, of the World Wide Web. Most recently, when talking about Web3, we talk about uh, a vision of the Internet in which it's underpinned by blockchain technology and distributed systems uh, to embed a essentially a transaction layer uh, into the Internet. Today, the Internet is a public information infrastructure. In Web3, you embed a payment infrastructure within that as well. It's so important to distinguish between the two because the metaverse can categorically exist with or without Web3. Um, and there are many interesting Web3 implementations that aren't really very metaverse either.
0: And I hadn't actually heard that
1: distinction before because a lot of the
0: podcasts I listen to about the metaverse, they, they don't even make the distinction. There seems to be a bit of a blurring by by some people of the concepts.
1: Yeah, I think if I'm being uncharitable, uh, the Web3 community... Has one of the criticisms of the Web three community is that it's occasionally a solution looking for a problem, um, and I think the Web three community have have often co opted the Metaverse as a very useful use case to demonstrate um, its utility. Um, they are very separate, and I think it's important that that we think of them separately.
0: Well, the, well, thanks for that. And perhaps we can understand that better, and all of these things by trying to understand the practically what these things mean. And 810 I was going to ask you, in terms of the things that come across your desk recently, can you give our listeners one or two examples of issues that arise in this area?
2: Sure, thank you. Um, so most of my work is involving, uh, work with crypto companies, privacy companies, and a lot in video games. And that then brings in things like rights licensing and whatnot. And um, one of our clients I'm able to discuss is FIFPRO, which is the union of football unions, and, that's how I know how, how I know James, and um, they license their rights into football games and have done for for a long time, and it could be Sega, Konami, um, EA, any of those big any of those big outfits, and more recently they've they've uh, licensed to a company called Matchday, which is intending to create a a management game with cards, and those but those cards can be owned by the by the individual players, and so when you look at the the history of, of the internet, is as Tom was, as Tom was um, sort of bringing in, it's, it's gone through these iterations of read, write, and then own. So initially, the content was there for you. That's web one. Web two is social media where people are generating content for each other, and that's the writing part of the internet. Web three is the owning of the internet. It's where you can take the, these assets out of the game and plug them into another game or into another virtual environment. And this metaverse concept is... It's, it's distinct from a universe in the sense that it's a universe of universes. And so um, this will then allow, we, I mean, personally, I hope not in a kind of speculative way um, because I do recognize that NFTs and other crypto have been used very speculatively and you know, they are the, in a lot of cases, the solution to no one's problem. Um, but hopefully it will allow people to, to start to innovate in other ways based on the IP assets that they take from one game. And apply them to another game, building games on top of each other's. And um, you know, if you remember way back when iTunes came along, and um, people were saying, "What happens to these? What happens to the, the songs I've to spend a fortune on when I die?" You know, these mm. conversations hadn't, yes. hadn't been had, and then all of a sudden, they, they came to the front of everyone's mind. Web3 we should theoretically solve that because you're in custody, in, you're taking physical possession of the, or digital possession of the of those in-game assets that you're spending
0: your money on, or other virtual assets. And although I said be practical and, and, and you were and not talk about concepts, just I get my head around that. Are you actually owning as a consumer or a creator? Because um, you mentioned the FIFA Pro game, and I'd be interested in James's view on this as well. I know there was a little controversy, and I always like to throw it in these podcasts that uh, some players and agents complained that they didn't believe they'd given over their image rights. Um, and I think what you were talking about just now is the ability to own by purchasing something uh, a, a right. But what about those who've created the, 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 um, the product in the first place? Do they have greater or lesser ownership rights as a result of these technological developments?
2: Um, well, it, it does all start with IP rights and other types of rights. Um, those things get packaged up into these, into these items. And then they can be sold, the license is sold, and then it can be, it should, to be web three, it would necessarily be further, further sellable or sub-licensable or, or, or however that's constructed under the contracts of licensing. But um, it should be something, and often it should be something which um, the originators have the right to give. So you'll sometimes find with, for example, musicians, their NFTs are based around their graphical art because they've signed away their music rights to various other companies throughout their career. In the context of footballers, and James is going to know this way more than I do, they often give their rights to all kinds of places. It could be it could be to um, it could be to their sponsors, it could be to their clubs, to the league, um, and to other brands. And so um, often it's a patchwork of these rights that are coming together to create the NFT. My preference as a lawyer uh, um, is that these things are are more original, and um, and then you have an easier i p issue to solve mm. than than we're trying to patch it together from other places mm.
0: James
3: I think that's why this area is so interesting though is because you know the these concepts are not something that uh, were in the minds of the players you know when they first give their rights away in a in the in their employment contracts, which hasn't been updated for for many many years, probably a decade or so so that's why, I have to be honest, this is a new area for me as well. And it's one that I'm learning day to day. In fact, I'm privileged to have a front row seat to these experts here to listen to what they have to say. But um, I think that you know, in this industry, in sport, football can't rest on your laurels. If you're not embracing changes in the marketplace, you can't effectively advise players and protect players. And uh, it's certainly an area where, we're getting a lot more questions from players around the use of their, not just their you know commercialisation of it, but their personal data as well. Uh, and as these technologies and games develop, I think uh, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a question to be had about you need to go back to what was the original uh, grant of rights or consent that was given.
0: I think that's probably going to be a common theme of today because so many of our concepts, whether it's the our legal concepts and legal structure, but also the contracts you talk about were drafted or conceived at at a time long before any of this technology developed and isn't actually fit for this technology. We, we need to develop a, a new set of laws and contracts and so on, wouldn't you say, to, to reflect these innovations? Um,
2: yeah, I think that's, I think that's definitely helpful. Sometimes you look at a contract and it will say, in any media and any technology, whether on Earth in outer space, and it's so broadly drafted. Um, I think that as time passes, things get narrower because they're anticipating a new technology and thinking that might be another license fee for me if I can broaden the scope of the license at that time. Um, it does depend on on what's right in front of you in the contract because there's a lot of variation, especially in when well, in football, it varies between different between different leagues associations, and um, it's hugely fragmented. Mm.
0: And I was going to ask you another question before we move on to some of the perhaps slightly more difficult concepts. But I think one thing that most of our listeners will be familiar with, uh, Eitan, is is gaming and the computer gaming market, e-games, video games, whatever they are called by different people involved in them. Uh, what's the relevance of that market to sport now? It's an easy question, but it's almost it's almost difficult
2: to answer because it's such a such a big industry. Um, it's the computer game industry as an entertainment industry is massive and it's on on par or bigger than the other the other key entertainment industries um some of the biggest brands are video game brands if you look at pokemon um, gta those types of things there's crossovers between um, video games and film and film and video games i think that the people are thinking of these ips more collectively through different types of media and um and the interaction with conventional sport well certainly with spectator sports in the UK football, in the US, um, American football and basketball especially. There are key games that kids always play and everyone plays them Um, much the way a lot of, you know, the majority of of, um, of people will play football. And um, you're starting to see that people get into football because of FIFA or people get into FIFA because of football. Mm. And um, no, the whole, a key thing about the metaverse is this convergence. It's a convergence from the real to, to the virtual is convergence of games and, um, and interactive entertainment versus entertainment you just sit and watch and enjoy. And, um, and it's the same of sport. Um, and if you look at things like live events, mostly in music, um, but live events in metaverses have drawn huge crowds. And there's no reason why um, that wouldn't be the same in, in
1: spectator sports once the hardware catches up. Anything to add on sports, on, on uh, games, gaming? I was actually going to take a step back and address um, the point around new laws needing to come in. I'm conscious, I think, I feel extraordinarily privileged sitting here because the English legal system is a beautiful thing. The Law Commission has done a lot of great work examining what law, if any, needs to change. And that they recently had a, a consultation which concluded that actually the English legal system is well equipped to adapt to smart contracts without new legislative intervention that's incredible that's a that's a legal system that has been going for the best part of a thousand years that doesn't need new intervention to uh, enact and enforce an automated form of contracts that's i I think that's a remarkable thing and something we should be very proud about um they're cons they're consulting at the moment um as to whether or not they need to introduce a new class of property at english law um which is again, massive when we think about the age of the English legal system. And I'm sure the lawyers in the room and listening will cringe at my reductionist definition. But broadly, we have two classes of property, a show's in possession. If you can kick it, it's probably a show's in possession and a show's in action, right, that you can sue against. What is Bitcoin? You you can't kick it. And there's no central issuing entity that you can sue. So what is it? Currently, they've done some uh, legal magic to uh, argue that it, it falls under a very broad definition of a, of a shows in action um, but they're now consulting as to whether or not they're going to introduce something new I think that's one of the most interesting things we'll see come out
0: mm. and James just on gaming I don't know if you're a gamer or any yeah. of your <laughs> no, I, sh- I should ask our producer is there anyone else around the table a gamer the, sometimes yeah of I wish I had the time um is it a sport? Is, is is esports a sport? What's anyone's views on that? Is it, you know, can it be
3: in the Olympics? Will we see it in the Olympics? I think we will. I think we will. I mean, it's, uh, I, I remember when I first started, you know, working in sport and e-sports e- was something we, I was encouraged to uh, embrace and get to know. And I have to say, it's not really my thing, um, but... In the space in, over the last 10 years, it's grown hugely. And I, when I was at Arsenal, we met with, uh, I was working on the retail side. There was a retail provider who was doing his first esports event. He didn't know what he should take along in terms of merchandising. He sold everything out within an hour. It, he just completely mis, misjudged the, the, the size of the market there. And it, it's, it's booming. Um,
1: I certainly think it is. I mean, Lando Norris, Formula One driver, describes himself as a as a full time streamer, part time F one driver. That's it's it's certainly. I think we're very precious about what what constitutes a sport. I don't know why, really. It's it's entertainment, yes, Um, and I think it ticks that box.
0: Can I ask you a more difficult one? Now, I think it's more difficult. Um, NFTs. I know uh, the sports group you are involved with, Tom. Um, is involved with a range of NFTs and utility token projects. And certainly we've seen an explosion of activity around that area in the last year or two, including in football in particular. But I think there's still a lot of people that don't really understand, not sure if I completely do, what an NFT is and how it works and what its value therefore could be in sport. Can you
1: tell us about that? Yeah, of course. So on a blockchain, we have assets um, that are represented by way of token. Those are either fungible, i.e. completely interchangeable with one another, or they are non-fungible, i.e. they have unique characteristics, which means there's no uh, ready substitution. Um, The classic example is if I borrow £10 from you, Nick, you probably don't care whether or not I pay you back with two £5 notes or £10, £1 coins. Um, if no, you lend, would. you would. You're, <laughs> you don't want the change. Yeah. Uh, but if I were to borrow a piece of art from you, you probably wouldn't be too impressed if I said, here you go, here's an artwork of equivalent value. Um, you probably want the thing you lend me. That's yeah. how we think about it. Um, all an NFT is, is a crypto asset um, and the way it is being constituted is such that it has unique properties, um, and therefore you can start to trade unique things rather than just fungible assets from time to time. I still don't know if I understand
0: what you actually own, though, because you know I experimented with this to try and understand it, and set myself up on the blockchain and got some <laughs> cryptocurrency and bought a um, ape, whatever it is, you know, one of these things that's not too expensive. But you know what? I've, I've got a little photograph of this ape. And I've got the digital certificate proving that it's my NFT. And I understand someone could make an offer, they haven't yet to to buy it from me. But what what do I actually own? I don't
1: own the photograph, do I? I I own the certificate saying I own the photograph or what? So very good question. So the way an NFT is is comprised is of multiple data packets. Um, You are buying those data packets one of those data packets might be a piece of art actually within that data packet in which case yes you do own control that piece of art more likely that's seldom the case um, because to embed an an image in the uh, data packet would be a very very expensive thing to do Um, so usually projects instead have a link hyperlink um, to a storage facility which we hope, is in a decentralised, robust, resilient um, data storage facility, but often we see it's not, Um, and so what you're buying is a data packet with a hyperlink to an asset that's stored off-chain. That has all sorts of benefits from a speed and cost perspective, but does raise the question, well, what do I actually own? Um, And that usually, as with all things uh, legal, falls back on the terms upon which you, you bought it. Um, By default, no copyright in that image transfers. Um, We are seeing more and more projects now trying to be a bit more thoughtful about that and saying, actually, the buyer does um, receive assigned the intellectual property rights. Sometimes they're granted a license uh, that might include for commercial use. It might not. Um, But it it all goes down to the terms of of how it was purchased in the first place. Um, There are many ways in which we can structure it to get the outcome that you
0: want. And I, I don't know, um, Eitan, James, whether, or James, when you were at Arsenal, for instance, would, did, did you have anything to do with, were Arsenal doing NFTs? Is that, Has that happened yet?
3: Yes, I mean, uh, they were definitely growing into that space. Um, there were many partners, commercial partnership opportunities and ticketing as well was another one. They were thinking about, um, you know, metaverse application. Um, but I think Arsenal just... One of a number of clubs that have crypto fan token deals, uh, NFT partnerships. Um, so yeah, it's it, it was again when I was when I first joined the club. My, what I my interpretation of commercial deals was what's on the uh, the side, the the, ba- the barriers on the sidelines. And uh, but very quickly in, in my time, I was I was there six years. But the types of commercial deals that were uh, that we were getting hesitant for were just changing, and the types of industries was just ever expanding.
0: Um, Aten, can you give us examples of how NFTs are developing in sport and w- where you see them most commonly now?
2: Um, if it's all right, I'm going to give, I'd like to give a quick blast on, on the sort of the context of it. If that's Please okay. do. Yes. So, what the, the innovation of the blockchain is to allow digital things to be scarce and to allow that 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 to that, that to occur without anyone in particular being in charge of it. Normally, when you digitize something, you um, you you make it more usable in lots of ways. So if you take a letter and digitize it, you've got email, huge advantages over a letter. Similarly, if you take a magazine and digitize it, you have a website, huge advantages over a printed website. You can have interactive content, video, and you can effectively infinitely copy it. If you're doing that with something you want to keep scarce, um, the digitization kind of breaks it because you then have... An infinite number of forgeries. Um, that's why that's the innovation of Bitcoin, is to say we're gonna have some value, it's digital, and when I send it from A to B, B received it, and critically A is deprived of it. And that's all the NFT is doing: it's taking digital content and it's guaranteeing that it's gonna stay scarce by attaching it to this one token and allowing the blockchain to record who owns it at what time, mm-hmm. and also to then deny ownership of the sending party. Mm-hmm. And so anytime you have any digital asset you want to keep scarce like a like a football ticket or any ticket Um, if you want to be able to share the tickets digitally and not have to meet up in the pub before the match and hand out the tickets um, the blockchain is going to help you do that Um, often the blockchain is being used because it can generate wild amounts of money when the market's hot Um, but actually that's the real that's the real utility of, of it it's to allow digital things to be transacted once people understand that concept then it's easier to find the right kind of use cases but um, that, that's why digital art can't exist without an NFT. If you want to say, I only
0: own your version of this, or I own the only one of 100 or 10,000 or something. But how does it work with things like, you know, I, I see football players selling their best goals, which is a presumably a you know, video clip from Sky okay. or Match of the Day or whatever of a goal they have scored. How does so, that work? So they have some digital
2: content. They want people to feel that it's got more value it's not just a YouTube video that anyone can see. So they say, this is a piece of digital content. You can only access it if you're in possession of the NFT. And the NFT also shows how many other copies of this are out there. So maybe let's say there's a hundred. And that then becomes, well, what people hope is that that becomes desirable because it's, the, it's intended by the player as being the original artwork. The Campbell Soup dude. Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol, okay. And- so when Andy Warhol decided to create those screen prints he didn't create just one at a time. He created a series, but they all originated from him or from his factory of art. Um, it was known how many were being created. And they were endorsed by him. And they were, they were probably from him. Um, and you know they're signed screen prints. And so um, the NFT is a very similar thing. It's mass produced. There might be more than one of the same type, or they might be slightly different. But they come from a, from a, a known source. It's endorsing them. And the source is saying, I'm only making 100. And then the market will decide how desirable that is, because economics says that if the if the supply stays fixed and demand goes up, the price goes up.
0: And I'm going to go off on, on a bit of a tangent from what I was going to ask, but um, it, one of the listeners sent me in this question. I thought it is a good one. Um, regulation of these things. Uh, it, there's a, I know there's a, a a current consultation paper about regulation of cryptocurrency the treasury and it looks like they're not currently looking at regulating nfts in the same way but is, is there a need from a consumer point of view i'm thinking of football fans for example who are buying these nfts perhaps with no financial advice at all and they might think it's a useful investment tool and suddenly it's worth a tenth of what it was when they bought it I mean, do we, is it something you feel we need regulation of
1: I think it's really important that we distinguish between crypto assets that are purchased or marketed as a financial investment instrument and fan tokens or utility tokens that aren't intended as a financial instrument and rather just a, uh, a mechanism by which people participate in an ecosystem um, or an NFT where someone just really likes a piece of art. Well, does that mean, though, there ought to be a bit of a warning to fans saying, when you buy this fan's
0: token, don't expect it has any value. It's just a utility for you.
1: Yeah, and I I don't think many I don't think clubs and organizations that are putting assets out there without a view to creating that as a as a financial instrument um would have any issue with that. I, I think it's I think it's important that they've carved out NFTs. I have to say, I don't universally agree with that, because some NFTs are marketed with a view to being an investment asset. Um, I I think it's somewhat reductionist and base to say NFTs, good fungible tokens, bad. Um, I think we need to look at what, how, how an asset is marketed, the, the motivations for purchases um, and the sort of commercial rationale behind launching it in the first place. I do think to be controversial, sports teams need to do better than they're doing right now. Um, They are, I think, they have got into the habit of being big brand owners who are used to uh, Mm -hmm. vendors approaching them and saying, hi, we'd like to throw some money at you for exclusive rights Mm -hmm. to be your blockchain partner, whatever that means. Um, I think they have to do better than that. I think they need to think, actually, no, we're not a sports club. We're a media company. We're an entertainment company. And all of these things are actually part of our core business, and we should be Doing things that are interesting and innovative with their with their assets, rather than flogging it to the highest mm-hmm. bidder.
3: It's interesting what you say, then, because some players have raised that with us, and you know, not all not all players are happy to endorse and promote NFTs. Um, you know, interesting pl- players don't have a choice over what commercial partnerships the club or the league enters into. And we, we have had players that have said, you know, they're, they're opposed to NFTs because of the um, volatility in the market and fans potentially losing money. Mm. Uh, but the other end of the spectrum, we've had players and agents that aren't happy that they don't have an interest in the NF- NFTs and the secondary market. Um, you know, there's no commission or flow down of benefit to them there. So um, and that, that goes back to the, the commercialization point, I think, which is, you know, it wasn't contemplated at the time that the standard commercial clause in the, in the player contract would cover something like NFTs.
0: Uh, no, exactly. We're no. not talking
3: about, you know, sticker albums. Uh,
0: uh, <laughs> Panini stickers, yeah. yes. Mer, mean, it, Merlin for me. <laughs> And James, that, um, that takes me really to my next question for you, which is is looking at players' rights in particular across sport and your expertise, particularly football, with the increasing exploitation of players' images in things like computer games or of personal training data, which can be used by betting and analytics companies, uh, What what's the PFA's stance on these developments?
3: Well, we totally understand that. Player data is essential for for developing a modern and innovative game. Um, it promotes, or sorry, it provides added value to players, to club, to clubs, to match officials, organizers, fans, etc. But the the football industry has to establish a trust and responsibility that's required if you're going to use sensitive personal information like health data or biometric data both in a in, in the workplace context and also as part of an in- entertainment industry so uh an example there might be the integration of skeletal tracking technology which w- was in the in the world cup and is being brought into the premier league i've seen articles that are that link the, the skeletal tracking into a metaverse application and that's something that needs to be you know needs to be discussed because I don't think that the players are clear that that could be a potential use of that data that's collected the last decade we've obviously seen a, a rapid increase in the amount and types of player data that that are collected and processed and, and analyzed um, the, gr- the growth and use of that data typically thought about from a performance perspective but we would say at the pfa that there needs to be a conversation around how it's used beyond perf- performance H- how is data used by uh, by the clubs and that because that's where the level of discomfort is for players um you know where there are commercial benefits that are being derived the players need to be central to that not clubs and leagues on one side and players on the other Uh, There there needs to be a collective approach there. So the the, the landscape's completely changed. Um, One of the factors that we think needs to be addressed is the degree of consent that players have given through those existing contracts and agreements, whether that that relates to, as I say, personal data or the commercial rights. You can't just stretch consent forever. Uh, Ultimately, Player data is personal data, and, and that's the protection of that is an accepted legal right. And as, as much as players give their consent, they can take it away. Uh, and that's important to remember as well. So the, we would say that the future of, of player data requires strong collective commitment to a, to a player-centric data policy that's based on personal rights and the existence of uh, the highest standards of protection f- for personal data. And that, that has to be across the board involving all, all stakeholders.
0: And, and that takes us to one of the, the current cases that's been discussed, um, Project Red Card, which is uh, a case I, I'm, I'm in fact instructed on, so I'll be careful what I say, as usual as a barrister. But um, Tom, tell us a bit about that.
1: So Project Red Card is very much a... uh, An ongoing case which examines the relationship of players to their data. Um, Mishcon Sports Group uh, too is acting for uh, a few on the other side, probably to James um, on Project Red Card. I think all in. I think it's a very. I think the whole case is a very positive development. Um, I think it's been long overdue that we have a, a proper look at how data rights are managed between. Um, players and the many other stakeholders within the world of sport. Um, I think it would be a net negative thing if the outcome of all of this is that lawyers get paid a lot of money to write more onerous and fulsome data provisions in contracts. I don't think that is what we want as an outcome. I think we want to to take a more holistic view and come to a come to a solution that works for all stakeholders in the game, for the betterment of the game and for the betterment of the sport. Um, it's interesting that football, for example, is a global game, um, and we're speaking very much from a UK perspective. Um, and, and we're often advising some of our international clients that they need to think about local regimes in different jurisdictions, um, because obviously, different countries can have uh, much stricter rules than we've got in the UK, um, or equally more lax. And we just need to have that global mindset when we're thinking about it. But all in, I think is a, I think is a positive look at a topic that's probably gone unlooked at for too long.
0: And just just, um, in terms of my basic understanding of some of the things that uh, arise here and how it perhaps could be good for the game, um, as I understand it, a lot of the data that's collected from players' training is then sold on through a chain and most of the players have no idea who's in this chain In fact, very few people have any idea who's in the chain. Um, And it can end up being used and owned by betting companies or other sports analytics companies who then use the data uh, to to get better odds on their bets. And uh, whether people agree with that or not, or the morality of it or not, I mean, one way that presumably we could change things for the better of everybody is, is to... Make it possible for there to be remuneration for the players whose data that is to go back into the game to the players uh, from some of the betting companies who seem to earn reasonably good profits out of using it. And it could be another stream of income into football. We had broadcasting in the past, satellite TV and so on. Perhaps this is a way to use these new innovations to bring in new money into football.
1: You should go into web3 that sounds like a very web 3 view of uh, view of the future. Absolutely I think the challenge for this th- that sort of view of the world is the same challenge that many web3 vendors have found it, that isn't how innovation is funded and and if the people with the money don't want that it's, it can be very very difficult to make them seed control and seed revenue streams in this space. A10. I, th-
2: I think with um, with Project Red Card that, well, with privacy laws generally, it's about privacy itself. It's not about a commercial right to the data or the IP in a database or copyright in a database. And, um, and I think that GDPR does provide that people will obtain data from sources other than the individual. That isn't to say that the individuals couldn't become sources of data themselves. And it might be they want to share more data. Um, the internet's basically free because you give your data away. And it's a value exchange. And that's very well understood, I think, um, in the industry and increasingly understood in, you know, amongst, amongst the population. In the uh, Zuckerberg line, is it Zuckerberg? If you, if if the product's free, you're the product. Mm. And um, they just want you to hemorrhage all your data onto their platform so they can sell it. Maybe the value exchange can be renegotiated. But I think it does need to, does need to be put into those commercial terms. Mm. I don't think it's a question of forcing it through by arguing that GDPR offers a commercial right to the data subject themselves, much the same way as a photographer owns a the photo they take of you, even if you're in the photo.
0: And um, But, but what they can do, Aitan, isn't it, is, is they can withdraw consent for those who are using their personal data to
2: use it. But they haven't. the people using it aren't, aren't using consent because they don't have contact with the player because they're taking the, the data from public sources. They're using a different legal basis. It's not consent-driven. And therefore, as long as it's balanced, and I'm not going to get into a whole GDPR rabbit hole, which I can do sometimes, um, then it, the, the, you know, it's a question of, of exercising things like rights to object. Um, there's a process there where there might be overriding grounds on which to refuse the objection. Again, there are very few absolute rights under the GDPR, um, unqualified rights. And often, the, the, often the, the business will be, or the, the data controller, let's say, We'll be using data when it does the nitty-gritty stuff in aggregate, in which case GDPR is not going to kick in, um, and those types of things. But absolutely, if a player says, here's a load of data about me, and I consent to it being used, that is valuable to someone. And there's certainly a a commercial conversation to be had there.
3: Mm. You're talking about legitimate interest, aren't you? Because again, I think from a player perspective, that's very unclear about when legitimate, the bound, the, the stretch of legitimate interest.
2: Um. Yeah, and it's up to the controller to demonstrate that what they're doing is lawful and they've got to comply with GDPR and the, and the, and the UK frameworks, um, which are similar or almost identical. Um, but that's not a question that's, that, they, that the footballers should be having with the, with the companies. That's a question that people should be having at a policy level as to whether these laws are actually doing what should happen in non-consent data processing scenario. But ultimately, if, if it's seen to be balanced under the law, then the processing's
0: lawful. Subject to, I mean, I'm
2: not saying it always is. No. And in your scenario, but I mean, I'm there's like, a change. difference,
0: isn't there, between, let's say, a football club or a football league collecting data to ensure um, health and safety of players, which is obviously a legitimate interest, and then maybe selling that data onto a betting company to use it to make odds to make more profits on betting i mean i'm not saying betting could never be a legitimate interest but there's a big difference there isn't there well the the, what's a legitimate interest is quite a low bar
2: and it's the interest of the data controller not of the individual and all of us here have already had our data transacted probably in the half an hour before we started this podcast because that's how ad tech works you go on a website they, they take the data about you they combine it with other data points And then they broadcast it to hundreds of intermediaries and and advertisers who then bid for the right to serve their ad to your particular eye at that time. Um, Again, there's not not great transparency in that supply chain, but it doesn't mean it can't be fixed. That's not the issue. The issue, the, the issue The issue is the, personally, my view is the issue is the fundamental premise that you
0: can derive commercial rights from GDPR. You can get damages, but it's not the same. But, but perhaps what we're also talking about here is, is, is what James was saying earlier, which is, and what I was saying about the law catching up. What we're all saying about that, um, we never imagined twenty years ago that, you know, as you said, if it's free, you're the product. That all this data, half of us don't know we're giving away all the time, and is being used for commercial exploitation. And so, I think perhaps what you're saying is that policy and law needs to catch up with that because as it is it's it's not necessarily reflecting the huge commercial transactions that do exist in this area yeah and 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 especially
2: enforcement because the lack of transparency there should be transparency actually quite a lot of transparency if you follow gdpr properly um it we are only five years in that feels like a long time but it might take another five until we really know what gdpr looks like and um and at an enforcement level, that's when you actually see what this law means to the real world. So um, I'm inclined to say that some business models that use data will struggle to deal with that transparency issue of making it clear to the individuals what's happening to their data. Mm. Um, but others won't, and they won't need consent, and they'll be able to analyze football players. And um, that's probably going to be a part of life, much like getting a photo taken when you're just trying to do your shopper. Mm. Do you shop in the supermarket? It's kind of an occupational hazard. Um, I don't know if I'm
1: being unsympathetic. Maybe someone else wants to correct me. I think it's fascinating that it's it's the players that are driving a lot of this debate and conversation. I think I think there are many many examples within the Premier League alone of high profile footballers that have have sort of seized seized the initiative and seized the opportunity to turn themselves into a brand and therefore see the value in their data and their image rights and all of these other things. Um, I think that is, one, a testament to how uh, business-minded and entrepreneurial many of the players are now. I think it's also a slight criticism of the way the system and the clubs in particular are servicing them at the moment. Like I said earlier, I think clubs need to do better in many ways. Um, And I think were they doing better, there may not have been a lot of these things um, coming to light because it wouldn't have needed to be litigious. It could have just been a conversation.
0: Okay, well, I'd like to go on to a part of the podcast I know our listeners always enjoy um, much more than you might imagine. It's for you guys to share with our listeners how it is you got to do such an interesting job. Your, your careers are now at the, the cutting edge of this very dynamic new space. Tom, starting with you, tell us about your journey.
1: Uh, So I trained as a lawyer. Um, I trained at Alan Overy, moved to Mishkondorea as a uh, corporate lawyer around six years ago. Um, I did a lot of work with uh, Simon Leaf, Tom Murray, who I think has been a guest on on this podcast before, um, within the the sports team. Um, My focus was really on emerging technology. I was an average lawyer, Um, but I was a good developer and uh, good at the sort of broader strategic thinking. Um, and so clients quite quickly realized that they could get more value from me, helping them figure out what to do um, and engineering things rather than um, advising on the, the legal and regulatory ramifications of, um, of what they are already planning on doing. Um, so I now run uh, a team of about 40 people um, within the Michigan Dorea group. I'm the only lawyer in the team Everybody else is either a software developer, uh, a designer, data scientist, um, or they are a strategist, um, management consultant, and we're designing and building strategy and software for clients. Um, sport has always been close to my heart, and, and for that reason, I sort of very deliberately built a practice at the intersection of, of technology and sport, and we've been lucky to work with Premier League football teams, leading boxers. Um, we're doing a big piece of work at the moment for a motorsports media company called Veloce. Um, and and uh, I'm fortunate that the firm, uh has a lot of very high-profile clients in this space as well, Socios being one of them.
0: Yes. Oh, great. James, you started in private practice. Uh, and then, of course, you explained uh, it, Arsenal Premier League club Uh, now at the Union, what took you uh, on your journey and what advice would you give to to people interested in this area?
3: Uh, So, yeah, I I started my career representing individuals, so come full circle, really. Um, Always had a passion for sport, particularly football. Uh, I did a postgraduate certificate in sports law when I was at Mishcon, helped develop the sports group there. Um, was that, can
0: I just ask you, was that the, which course was that? The, De Montford? The De Montfort. Yes, yes.
3: That's right. Um, so yeah, so I initially started acting for players uh, and agents. In fact, my very first football case I worked on, we instructed your good self,
0: Nick. Ah, um, yeah, very well chosen. <laughs> you mu- we must have won.
3: <laughs> we did. Yeah. Uh, so I then started acting for clubs over time. Opportunity arose at Arsenal, uh, had six years there, uh, working across all aspects of the club, uh, but, but mainly in football operations. Quite a roller coaster of a time, Brexit, COVID, European Super League, growth of women's football, fan-led review, aside from the ups and downs of, of football. Um, but I, I saw uh, Vinay at the London Football Awards last week and I said, I'm, I'm trying not to take offence at the fact that the club's m- made such a significant upturn in fortune since I left. <laughs> um, so clearly doing something wrong. Uh, but yeah, and then come come back to acting for, for players. Uh, it's something that I, th- it's a, a real privilege and an opportunity I have now to try to improve things for players who've, voice is often ignored or or worse um, unheard so uh, to, and to get players in the wider world to see the incredible things that the pfa does essential importance the power of the collective is in the resurgent as i keep saying uh, to maheta um in terms of advice uh what so one partner said to me very early on you need to be a good lawyer first and the, and the opportunities and the work will come after that. So I I focused on employment law. It seemed to be at the heart of a lot of the, of the issues that I like dealing with, uh, advising and negotiating transfers, manager hirings and firings. Uh, But it was, it was a long road because I I started as a trainee at Linklater's doing a capital market seat and uh, football world felt like quite a long way away when I was doing that. So be patient, I would say.
0: I think that's excellent advice, if I could say. It's something I often say to people who say, you know, they want to be a sports lawyer. Very rarely would I suggest, although it's much easier now than it was 20 years ago, but still, I would not suggest start off being a sports lawyer. Start off doing something more general, commercial employment, some regulatory, IP, whatever it is. You pick up those skills and bring it to sport than, rather than coming there... Um, and it may be the same, I don't know, I'd like to ask you, Aitan, because you've been working in this area since way back in 2014. Did, did you decide this is the area I want to get into, or how, how did it happen?
2: Um, so I was, at, I was at Sheridan's, it was actually 13, but I was at Sheridan's um, a couple of years, and um, I was working mostly in the video games team, and we were doing lots of work with actually one of the preeminent metaverses of the time, Minecraft. We, we acted for them from their from their second employee or first employee, second person, and um, and some of the gamers were coming through saying we we have already we were already dealing in virtual currencies, but they were centralized currencies, and then there were these kind of gray markets where people would show up inside Second Life and hand over a bunch of some asset and and they were they were trading and uh, but they were trading for real world value and. Um, there was a there was a regulatory piece I think in the U.S. from FinCEN, which is a which is it's an effectively it's a type of a type of regulator for AML, and um, and some of the gamers were saying, what does this mean for our for our businesses where we're all kind of operating it's mostly indie games you see so they're all kind of operating in this gray zone um, trading these currencies and they were like does this does this mean I need AML? Um, because the guidance had, or the 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 diktat from FinCEN was that bitcoin if you're trading bitcoin you need to take AML and um i i always wanted to just do as much technology as i could and try and work out what the work out what the futures going to be and then advise on that and um this just seemed either like it was going to completely crash and burn or it was going to actually change things and so um i just made sure i was the, the bloke who picked up all the bitcoin work that was coming through and at the time, the community was so small that you could, um, you could just call people up or you'd meet them at conferences. There might be a 150-person conference, but everyone will be there. And so, um, yeah, people like um, they had a Coinbase, you know, go for dinner. We aren't in touch now. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, go for dinner, meet them at conferences, that kind of stuff. And, um, and it was interesting to people, and it kind of it told a bit of a story. And as a media firm, the NFT thing was it was really easy for us because we're just in a firm surrounded by rights. It's so much IP rights, image rights, um, sport, different types of media. And so um, NFT is just taking that and sticking an NFT on it. And, um, and so that's what we've been doing for the last few years. And um, obviously the market, this is one of the various crypto winters that, that have been seen since the beginning, since I guess from 2010 and um yeah but it's interesting at this kind of time because the more interesting the more interesting companies they they tend not to have a problem with it because they back themselves and they feel like what they're doing is 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 relatively better than what's out there Mm. if you feel you're just as good as everyone else and you're depending on the market to be hot then perhaps your your product isn't as strong as it should be Mm. so um we're still busy doing all that stuff and um yeah, it's nice to see the clients kind of getting on with it, even though the, the market is down, but for quite a few of them, it doesn't seem to bother them at all.
0: Well, that's that's also um, very good advice that resonates because as, as well as, you know, being a good lawyer, as James said, identifying a new area of growth and deciding, you know, you want to be in there and taking the initiative yourself, going to those conferences and meetings or something, it's certainly, again a lot of what we had to do in sports law to get on in sport. What would your advice be, any of you, Tom, starting with you, anyone out there listening who says, you know, I, I really like this new technology. i like to get involved in this legal area.
1: What should they concentrate on? Good question. I think my advice would be the opposite. Don't be patient, be impatient, <laughs> be be super direct Um identify don't fake it I think I think it's it's a long old career if you're going into an area not because you're interested in it but because you think it's going to be a big thing pick something you actually care about pick something you believe in Um, ideally don't make that an industry that's totally in decline Um, but but find something that you're passionate about that you're interested in that you're uh, enthused to read about and learn about in your spare time and make yourself the incumbent in that space. Um, I think the only way you do that is by being ruthlessly disciplined and focused mm. and dedicated.
0: And is this an area that you, you feel there will be more opportunities in for lawyers in the future? I think everyone's nodding their heads. And, you know, going back, just imagine you're a law student now. What, what subjects in particular do people need to be looking at? What, what core subjects of law... Do they need to understand to properly get into this area?
2: Well, it's it's again, it's this convergence thing. It's partly it's data and digital identity. And if we're talking about metaverses, that's going to happen. And Twitter is now talking about verified IDs and more more prevalence of that. Um, it's IP. Um, it's advertising that links and funds a lot of it. And there's going to be some regulatory stuff because um, crypt- crypto sits so uncomfortably over so many different <laughs> areas of regulation. So um, it, it can sometimes be tricky to keep on top of it all. And you kind of do eventually need a team. Um, but I would, I would start with, the, with that list. Um, I, I, very early on, someone said to me, a, a lawyer from the States, who um, did, did extremely well, do you realize our futures in banking regulation? I thought, oh, God, <laughs> I did not want to be doing banking regulation. And um, I didn't. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily commit yourself to do all of those things choose the bits you like and find someone who's, who you like
1: and to be clear to law students the metaverse is absolutely inevitable there is no way there is a 0% chance that our future isn't going to be increasingly a blurred physical and digital experience web 3 jury's still out um, will the next evolution of the internet be underpinned by a transaction and ownership layer don't know I hope so I think it would be a A progressive step um, that would would make the future much more interesting and potentially equitable. Um, But the metaverse is inevitable. There is no putting that back in the box. No way.
0: And 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 some of our listeners might think we've strayed away from sports law a bit, but uh, perhaps it it raises the issue given the growth of this area that if you want to be a sports lawyer or get involved in the sports sector, one of the things you should really be looking at now is the metaverse web three and all these innovations. If you're going to bring something useful and helpful to clubs and players and so on, I think yes. everyone's nodding their head. Yeah, James.
3: I, <laughs> c- I agree with that. I mean, as I said at the beginning, you know, it's not, not an area that, um, I was particularly familiar with and still learning. Um, but with that, without a doubt, uh, if you want to be an effective advisor you know, from a player perspective, this is, these are questions that were being asked. Um, and th- this generation of players, they ask more questions and they, they want to understand their rights. Uh, so they, they can't be closed out of the conversation. Um, so they, if you want to advise, advise them, expect the questions because they will ask them.
0: Well, I often joke, you reminded me, Etan, talking about banking regulation, that um, when I started out as a sports lawyer, I never imagined I would spend uh, maybe half of my practice these days dealing with financial regulation. But that is now so key and important in sport, in football in particular. And uh, I think this area is going to be as key and important over the next uh, 5, 10, 15 years. Um, so, looking at the future, very last question for you all, um, using your virtual crystal balls, can you each tell me one thing, or more than one if you've got one, um, that you think will be a, a new significant technological, commercial or legal challenge in this area in the future? One thing to look out for? Who wants to go first on this?
1: I'll go. Um, so, So, technological... The price of hardware is going to come down more and more and more that will allow us to do more interesting things in the metaverse. I guess the other technological thing is what meta does in this space. And I have very strong views on the meta behemoth and Zuckerberg and what they are doing to society and our democracy. But they are solving technology problems that no other company in the world has to wrestle with. They have to build a system that handles 500 million concurrent users that is by three orders of magnitude more than really any incumbent in the metaverse space has to deal with. Um, and so it'll be fascinating to see what they do. Uh, commercially I think I, I hope that we will see more and more clubs grasping that they are brands and they are entertainment companies and they are media companies as well as sports teams. And therefore, uh, deriving new revenue streams in more interesting ways by building and taking ownership of these things themselves rather than outsourcing it to the highest bidder. Um, And legally, I think we're just going to see a rising tide of financial regulatory um, regulation globally, especially in relation to crypto assets within Web3. Um, I think that's a net good thing provided it's implemented properly um, and it'll weed out some of the bad actors and allow us to focus on the amazing companies that are doing amazing things for, for real people. Excellent.
3: James? Uh, for me, I think, um, it, it, obviously in the years ahead, we're going to see huge growth and advances, more and more data points per player um, being collected. You know, t- talking earlier about the, uh, the player, player tracking in particular, this is uh, that we saw at the World Cup and that's going to be brought into the domestic game. Um, but with that, additional collection of millions of data points that the risks associated increase and uh, they're they're clear for me to see and there needs to be better protection of the players um, in relation to to that increased development of technology as it stands there's no consensus on how player data is currently defined um, but the advances in technology are leading types of data that are now being collected to merge into each other so what's biometric and health that, that's rather rather than traditional event and tracking data they all they all seem to be verging into one another and I would say that coupled with the commercialization of of, of that data is a, is a major concern for players and, it, and as I said before it's something that you know this generation are asking more and more questions about so um, yeah, I, I expect there to be challenges ahead,
0: and I think there's a new FIFA Pro. I say new, few few months old charter, international charter now. on, right. on, on this issue, isn't
3: yeah, it? Yeah. So the, the PFA worked with FIFA Pro in in collaboration with with FIFA uh, for the charter of, of, of player rights, which is is exactly trying to find some base standards that can be applied, and uh, there's actually a. Conference being arranged for April, um, for the unions to attend. Another one organised by, by pro to try to educate the player unions across the world uh, on evolution of this area. To try to get a grip of um, of player of the of the player position in this. Because if we if we don't understand it, how can we possibly uh, look to protect and advise the players?
0: Excellent, Tan, What do you think we should be looking for? Um, Usually, usually, it follows from the hardware, and Tom was sort of alluding
2: to this. You know, 3G, 3G connection allowed social media to exist, and 4G allowed Netflix to exist because you just need that amount of data. Um, when Apple does something, it tends to do it really well, like touchscreen with an iPhone. And um, that VR, AR headset thing is going to, I expect, be better than, better than we we're expecting.
0: When, when are we expecting that to come is out? Is it this
2: year? It's going to be
1: next month. Oh, wow.
0: And th- th- that that means probably after this has been broadcast because, or before this has been broadcast, I should say, because whilst we're recording end of March, we're probably going out in May. Okay, Sorry, so later.
2: if if that if that is as good as Apple products tend to be, and it's well adopted, then that's going to change, I think, the way we engage with all kinds of different um, events.
0: So we're talking about a new, not great big, clumpy VR it's, headset, uh, but something... New and Apple-y. But it's obviously all,
2: yeah, it's all it's all, it's all going to be new and apple and probably very white. Okay. And um, it's going, I imagine, I mean, it, Apple tend not to do things. Historically, they haven't done things unless they know they're going to do it well. And um, so I would expect that to be, I expect that to have an impact. Um, and the other one that I just can't, I can't seem to get my head around is this generate, you know, AI-generated content mm. where we'll get to a point where, in the few years, we'll get to a point where um so much of the content on the internet will be machine generated and it will be very difficult to understand um what's real or what's human generated or what's not or if we even care and then what happens when the ai content starts to learn from itself um because it's it starts the machine is starting to learn from other ai content and how does that skew things and do people present themselves well on the internet probably not they probably rely on, an on- anonymity to say cruel and unkind things and um yeah. I'm not sure where I stand on this. But I, I did hear that 50% of AI developers say there's a 10% chance AI is going to end humanity. And um Oh wow. And given that we're into we're into all kinds of fossil fuels and plastics and, you know, smoking and all that, we haven't shown a a, a great a great ability to, you know, self-preserve. So here we go.
3: Hopefully we'll get the podcast out first. Yeah. <laughs> Before the end of days. Yeah.
0: Well, that's amazing. I think I've got from that hopefully cheaper computers or hardware generally, Um, clubs needing more expertise. So there's there's certainly a a role for new jobs in this market, in this area, Uh, greater regulation and scrutiny of regulation, which will be important for lawyers, including sports lawyers, player rights, and fief pro and then finally chat box is gonna ruin the world in some way um so whatever is the future holds and it's all very interesting one thing is clear is that this whole area is going to be a boom area for sport and for law and the intersection between those two things and um i hope this podcast and our fantastic guests have helped you understand some of those issues thank you very much You've been listening to the Sports Law Podcast with me, Nick DiMarco of Blackstone Chambers. For more information, you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn. And of course, visit our website at www.blackstonechambers.com.